you if you could, can I just ask you a favor this week? Come up a little close, just one row up. If everybody could be in front of the sound booth. I know that's a pain. Um, but if you were in my position, you'd ask the same thing. It's lonely up here. I counted the, chair, the seats in here last night. It's about 350 seats. So from up here, it looks pretty empty some Sundays. Oh, Tim, you're coming all the way up, man. Jeez, major upgrade to first class. All right. Well, that feels better to me, at least. Being selfish. All right, well, really quick, before I get into the actual sermon, I kind of want to have a little brief group discussion real quick. Uh, so I'm going to open this up. I'm asking you a question. In your opinion, why do you think most people who go to church, why do you think they do go to church? It's something to do. Okay, so like, would that be boredom or need a little activity, social, social life, go to church? Social networking, okay. Obedience, obedience to what? Or whom? Yeah, it's in Hebrews. Nice, all right. Yes. Okay, could be trying to make a turnaround in their life. Christine. Searching for something deeper. Deeper than what? Deeper than what they've experienced to this point? Okay. Anyone else? Go ahead, Michelle. At a tradition? I, that's what I was kind of thinking myself. But I don't want to, if I give you my answer, then it's a lecture. Anyone else? Okay. No, no others? Okay. Yeah, I, I think I have at some point have thought of all of those, and at some point I have gone to church for those reasons. Um, there was a summer in college where I lived by myself. Uh, I lived at the college by myself while all the other students were gone. So I went to college because it was, or I went to church because it was something to do. I was by myself all summer long on campus, barely ever saw anyone. Um, so I went to church for social stuff. Tradition, I mean, I, if you grew up going to church on Sundays, it's just what you do, right? Uh, people come because they're searching, they want to go deeper. None of those are bad reasons. I, I mean, I think actually a lot of those help us to get to make sure that we gather even when we might not want to. Diana's reason from Hebrews, I mean, that's scripture right there, do not forsake assembling with one another as some of you are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another, it says. So I think those are all important reasons. I want to explain why I think it is important to be a part of a local church and to be active in a local church. Uh, number one, and again, this is not the sermon. I'm going to get there. But number one, Christianity was never intended to be a kind of a solo uh, show. I mean, Jesus himself gathered 12 disciples around him, and the way he discipled them was by living with them, by being friends with them. And he said several times, you're my friends. I don't even call you servants, you're my friends. You know, the way, the way that they grew was in relationship with one another. And that's the way that we grow. I mean, I think if you lived in a cave by yourself for your whole life, I don't care how many times you read through the Bible, there's certain things in the Bible you can't experience without having other people around you. 
And if you hop from church to church to church to church and visit a different church every week, you will never go deep with those people that you hop around with. It, it takes time to develop those relationships. And a lot of the stuff Jesus calls us to and a lot of our sanctification happens in the midst of a deep relationship with other people. Especially all that love stuff that we're told to do. You've got to have other people around to try that out. Another reason I think it's important, I mean, if, if you have kids, and I know not everyone here does have kids, but you're at True Vine, just wait. You will. Uh, but I know, I know not everyone here do, that does have kids, but I want my kids to grow up knowing the Bible. And not only that, I want them to grow up around other Christian families to see how that looks like. I love the fact that, like, my son and, and Dan and Christine's son, Lucas, like just always hit it off. And whether, whether they're praying together or talking about Thomas the Tank Engine, and they're never praying together, uh, they just get along. And, and like my kid likes going to, my son likes going to church. I, Anna even got him dancing today, which I've never seen him do anything like that. Uh, and I'm not asking anyone else to parent my kids. In fact, don't, don't even try. But I like the fact that my kids get to witness what Jesus looks like in other people's skin and through other people's lives. Uh, and then also just the ability to be able to rely on other people. I don't, I don't know that we give enough emphasis to how important it is to be reliable. And I know that if I need something, that there's a whole list of people from this church that I could call and they would, they would be there for me as soon as they could. And I hope that for most of you, I can be that, that I can be reliable. Um, so I, I just, I, tradition helps me get to church, but I hope it's not ever just tradition. The social aspect helps me be a part of a church, but I hope it's never just so people can meet friends. There's so much to, to biblical Christianity that you have to be part of a, a group of people to encounter. Does that make sense? You got me on that? Even like the fact that we gather and worship in a group, that's different from when you worship at home, if you worship at home. But when it happens in a group, it's totally different. Even when you pray by yourself or pray in a group, that's different. It feels different, it functions differently, it operates differently. And even like the fact that we're all going to sit and look at the same Bible passage and, and study it together, that's different from than if I was studying at home by myself or listening to a sermon in my room. Which all of those are great, but I don't think we should do one at the expense of the other, all right? So I just wanted to give a little commercial for the church. Not our church specifically, but just the bride of Jesus. Uh, because uh, Jesus has no side John. There's not, he doesn't have some other entity that you can be a part of and... Um, experience him it's just the church he picked the church he organized the church he's the foundation and the cornerstone of the church again i'm not talking about our church i'm talking about the church his church um and it's what he set up to advance his kingdom on earth all right any questions about that before we get into this actual sermon okay all right well then let's do that uh let me pray real quick and then we're going to be in Nehemiah 4. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and find it. Jesus, we love you and your word, and I pray that you would help us to understand it and illuminate it for us. 
You inspired it by the Holy Spirit. Would you help us understand it by the Holy Spirit? I pray that Jesus in your name. Amen. All right, so what book of the Bible have we been in for the last seven weeks? Nehemiah. Okay, great. In fact, today is the 50th day we've been in Nehemiah. I mean, well, it's been 50 days since we started, I should say. I said this last week, and some of you knew the answer. How many days did it take the people of Jerusalem to rebuild the wall? Does anyone remember that? 52. All right, so we've been studying Nehemiah about as long as it took them to rebuild an entire city. Kind of makes me feel like we're a little lazy. Like we're only in chapter 4. They're, pre- they're ahead of our schedule. They're pretty much done by now. Uh, they're, at this point, they're two days away from being done. Um, but yeah, it took 52 days to rebuild this wall. Nehemiah went to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. And to this point, we've been mostly talking about him, him and the people of Jerusalem rebuilding a physical wall. In the next couple chapters, not today, but like in the next couple weeks, we're going to see that not only does he rebuild the physical city, but he rebuilds the culture of the city. That they start practicing do, different things and doing things differently. Some of the habits and practices that they had that were not good, they got rid of and they introduced some better practices. Actually, next Sunday, Shay will be preaching. Shay's one of our elders. You want to wave to everyone, Shay? Every, I think most people know who you are. but um, Shay used to be a stand-up comedian. Uh, he went by the name Godfrey. Do you remember Godfrey? Look that up online sometime. Okay, I shouldn't have done that because you get to preach next week. So I just want to review from last week. We were in chapter 4. I kind of preached it as a spiritual warfare sermon. Um, I'm not going to review the whole sermon again, but the idea was that uh, as Nehemiah and the people advanced in their assignment, the enemy opposed them. And there was a couple different ways that Sanballat, everybody say Sanballat. Okay, great. Uh, save a lot. Sanballat opposed Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem, and he is, for us, a metaphor of Satan, okay? Sanballat was a real person. This isn't a fable. It's a real story that really happened. But Sanballat is, a, is an opportunity for us to learn about how uh, Satan, the devil, our enemy, uh, opposes us and attacks us, and he does it by making fun of them and mocking and ridiculing them. Uh, there's threats um, and a couple other ways that he opposes them. But as we pick up in chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 9 today. We're going to talk, look at the way that impacted the people and how Nehemiah's leadership responded to that. So we're actually going to break up the passage today into three chunks. So it'll be like three mini-sermons. I promise I'll keep them short. Uh, so three chunks, three distinct chunks. So uh, if you can... Thank you, Nate. I'm actually going to ask for a volunteer if you would stand up and nice and loud read Nehemiah 4, verses 9 through 14. I'll have them on the screen. I'm going to ask that you would read them from the screen because that's the translation I'm preaching from. If you read from some other translation, you might completely lose me. So would anyone be willing to stand up? Diana, thank you, Diana. See, I said she's all right. All right. Diana, uh, we're gonna, you're going to read verses 9 through 14. That should take three slides to get through. Nice and loud.
All right, thank you, Diana. Let's give Diana a round of applause. All right, great job. All right, so we pick up in verse 9. It says, uh, Nehemiah is writing, We prayed to our God because of them. Them is referring to Sanballat, Tobiah, and all the other nations and people that were opposing Nehemiah and Jerusalem. So it's basically their enemies. We prayed because of our enemies. We prayed to our God, and we set up a guard against our enemies by day and by night. And in verse 10 it says, uh, In Judah it was said, The strength of the burden bearers is failing. There is much rubbish. Uh, We ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. Those are words of discouragement. At this point, the people of Jerusalem are getting discouraged uh, because they've been working on this wall and only since they started working on it has everybody been really angry at them. No one really cared about them once they, when they were kind of this beat-up, ragtag city that had no defense system. But as they stood up for themselves and began to, to kind of experience renewal and revival, that's when their enemies took notice and threatened to oppose them. Um, and then they, they, the enemies say, well, you're not even going to know it until we get there and kill you and stop the work. You're not even going to know we're coming until we get there and kill you and stop your work. And then there's all these other Jewish people that live on the outskirts of town, on the borders of town. It says, Nehemiah writes, that they came to them ten times and uh, said that Sanballat's going to come up, your enemy is going to come up against you from every place where you may turn. Kind of warning them of, a, of an ambush. When you say something happened ten times, that's either literally ten times or it's just a way of saying a lot. Like over and over, people were saying these really discouraging things to us. And then Nehemiah sees their fear and addresses them. So all through verse 9 through 14, we have voices, different voices speaking. The first people to speak, are the, that's the voice of the discouraged. They're saying, our strength is failing. We can't even rebuild this wall. Can you go back two slides for me, Nate? Our strength is failing. We can't be- rebuild this wall. There's a lot of rubbish trash. I mean, things look terrible. And this is the voice of discouragement. This is the voice of discouraged people, and they're, they're voicing how they feel about the situation. Now, this is all happening in a pretty short period of time, because again, it took 52 days to rebuild this wall. So they went from no wall and no enemies to this, you know, in less than two months. I don't know where in the process we are at this point, but they're discouraged, and they're voicing their discouragement. And then, uh, go next slide, great. So then their enemies start to voice their opinion. So now we have, they have the voice of the discouraged. Now we have the voice of the enemy saying, you will not even know or see until we come among you and kill you and put a stop to the work. So we have the voice of the discouraged. We have the voice of the enemy. Then all the people in Jerusalem get really scared and they start to speak. And that's when it says 10 times, uh, verse 12, they're going to come against us from every place and where we may turn. So you have discouraged people talking, you have the enemy talking, you have people that are full of fear talking. This, is, this would not be a fun place to be. The atmosphere in the city was probably pretty bleak, to say the least. But you think about it, the people that are doing the work are discouraged. The people that live in the city are fearful. 
and your enemies making threats against you. That's three distinct voices that are opposing God's assignment for Nehemiah and for the whole city. There is a fourth voice, and it's the voice of Nehemiah, and I actually think Nehemiah is speaking for the Lord here. Uh, so you could say this is the voice of God, but at least it's the voice of Nehemiah. And it says in verse 14, Nehemiah is writing this, When I saw their fear, I rose, or I stood, and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. So he's addressing the whole city somehow. And he says, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who's great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. So Nehemiah probably has to be the lone voice of hope in a situation that's pretty bleak. It says he rose up. So I, do you remember the movie Independence Day with Will Smith? Okay, Jason does. It, it was a good movie. Uh, I love end-of-the-world movies, and that was an end-of-the-world movie. All right, Independence Day with Will Smith. Do you remember the president from that movie? What was his, I think it was the actress, Bill Pullman. Actor, I should say, actor, Bill Pullman. Man, he gives like one of the best inspirational movie speeches. They're about to send Will Smith and Jeff Goldblum up. I'm doing all this from memory. I did not research these actors. I, I know their names. They're about to send them out into outer space to mess with these aliens that look kind of like Predator. Uh, and the president is standing up like on an, an aircraft uh, and he's, he gives this speech about like, this is our world and we're going to defeat these aliens. And um, yeah, it, we will not. Wow. Okay. Wow. Uh, we might have to have Jason do just a movie night and do remember, what's that football movie, Remember the Giants or? Remember the Titans and Facing the Giants. I confused two movies. Whatever. Anyway, that speech, I always remember that as like a, like a classic inspirational movie speech. So I picture Nehemiah kind of doing that. I doubt he stepped up on like a, like a plane because I don't think they had those back then. But the way, I, I picture him standing up and speaking to the people, and he says, and I think what, what he says is important, do not be afraid of them, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. There, the people's attention had been turned on the enemy so much that they had turned their attention off of God. And they were beginning to get impressed with the might of their enemy and not impressed with the might of their God. So Nehemiah's, prescription here was stop thinking about them so much and start thinking about God. Remember God. And that is something, this whole sermon is not about spiritual warfare, but when we're dealing with spiritual warfare, if you're impressed with the devil, you're impressed with the wrong person. Um, don't focus too much on the amount of power he has or what, he, what you think he could do or pull off. I think I don't know that we necessarily give him too much credit, but we don't give God enough credit, probably, uh, a lot of those times. And not to be impressed with him, um, and not to make him like this, this obsessive focal point of our thoughts when we're going through uh, situations like that. When you, obsession really does lead to discouragement, depression, and some other things. But, so he, he turns her attention back on God, and he reminds them why they're building the city, I, I don't know if he's just playing on their emotions or what, but he says, fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. I mean, 
That's kind of inspirational for me. I might just pull that out sometime. You know, if we don't ever have enough snacks, I'm like, bring snacks for your brothers and your sons, your wives and your daughters and your pastors. Elders. So here's my, here's my question for you. There's a voice of the discouraged. There's discouraged voices in this passage. There's fearful voices. There's the voice of the enemy. And then there's Nehemiah's voice of hope. Which voice are you normally? I mean, do you give voice to discouragement a lot? Or, or do you give voice to fear a lot? I mean, are you a fearful person that has to make sure everyone knows how fearful you are? Are you, are you the person that the enemy uses to make accusations? Because remember this, Satan doesn't normally show up in person to accuse people. He convinces Christians to do it for him. Someone is giving him an opportunity to make accusations. So is that you? Are you that voice? Or are you the voice that's like Nehemiah who's, who's reminding people about God's goodness and why they're doing what they're doing and offering hope? There's four different voices in this passage. Which one do you, which one comes out of your mouth more often? All right, so I'm gonna let you stew on that for a little bit and move to section two. Uh, the second section. So if someone wouldn't mind standing up and loudly, nice and loud, clearly reading uh, verses 15 through 20. Oh, Pat. Oh, my goodness. All right. Against my better judgment, Pat. Uh, can you go there? Great. It's going to be the next two slides. Go ahead, Pat. Nice and loud. All right, let's give Pat a round of applause. All right, so this section I think is really simple. Uh, if you could put 15 back up there for me, Nate, go back one slide. So, Nehemiah begins to break them into basically work teams. All right, it's, it's really simple. He takes half of them and puts them at the lower points of the wall, ready to fight at a moment's notice. They have their weapons, they're ready to go. They're basically on defense. He takes the other half and puts them to work building the wall. So half of them are defending the wall and the other half are building the wall. The half that are building the wall 
are doing it with one hand because they're holding a weapon in the other hand. All right, so I've never built a wall anything like this, but they're building with one hand, taking the stones, mortaring it, doing whatever, however they built this wall, while they have a weapon in the other hand, and then it also says they had a sword in their belt. So I imagine that at any time they're going to throw down their work tools and have a weapon in one hand and get the sword in the other hand and do one of these awesome Braveheart style, like two-handed attack mode situations. Yeah. Cut the bull head off. Um, so they're ready, even those who are working are ready to fight at any minute. So there's half of them are, are ready, they're at the wall on defense. The half that are working are still ready to go into battle at any time. Now, when I think about this, I don't know if it's the way my brain is wired, I think of the dynamics of how this exactly went down. I don't know if Nehemiah asked for volunteers and said, hey, I need half of you to stay at the wall. You're going to be on the front lines. If an attack comes, you're going to be the, the first ones there. I don't know if he asked for volunteers. I don't know if he knew who would be better there and who would be better building. There might have been some who are better at fighting and some who are better at building. And he, Maybe he put people there. Maybe he lined them up and counted one, two, one, two, one, two. All the ones go to the wall, all the twos go to work. I, I don't know how he did it. Nonetheless, he had half of them set up to do the defense and the other half set up to build. Now, I've been in church enough times to speculate about what they might have talked about. All the people that are on the front lines guarding the wall, but like, oh, look at these people just back here chilling on the inside of the city, just building slowly. Here I am on the front lines, my life on the line. I wish I was back there safe inside building a wall. And then you got the people on the wall are like, look at these people just standing up there looking for nothing. We're building the wall. We're carrying these heavy stones, putting everything together. And they're just standing there. We're not even in a battle. Now, I don't know if that conversation took place under Nehemiah's leadership, but I know that it takes place in churches all the time, and it discourages churches, and it tears them apart. Well, how come this person doesn't do that? I do this, and I do that. First of all, both of these roles are absolutely necessary. If the people on the, that are defending the wall are not doing their job, the city might get attacked, and then what good is a rebuilt wall when everyone inside the city is dead? Right? So that job is absolutely necessary. At the same time, if all the builders were standing on the wall on watch, no one's building the wall. Right? Like, they have to close those gaps. So you can't have everybody on stand, standing guard, but you also can't have everybody building. Everyone has their own role to play. Because if the builders aren't building, you're not going to close the gaps in the wall and you're just going to be stuck standing, guarding a half-built wall forever. So both are absolutely necessary. Here's why I think that's important for a church, maybe more specifically our church. We all need to know that not everybody here has the same gifting or calling or assignment. 
Just because not everybody helps with the ministry that you do doesn't mean they're not helping. Doesn't mean they're not doing something. Just because they didn't show up to your thing or help when you asked for help doesn't mean that they're not busy. Uh, I'm going to tell a story nice and anonymously. At one point in my ministry of 11 years, and I won't tell you what church has happened at, but uh, I spent four hours on a Saturday night mopping a room, setting up for a meal. Me and a group of other people spent four hours mopping a room, setting up tables, setting up chairs, cleaning, preparing for an event the next day. Went home like 11, tired, came back to church the next day. This person showed up, and because the chairs weren't arranged the way they thought they should be, and I'm a big on chair arrangement, personally, because the chairs weren't arranged the way they thought they should be, what, has anyone done anything here? Do I have to do everything? And I don't believe in punching church members, but in that moment I questioned that policy, And I actually had a very direct, high-volume confrontation with that person right in the middle of the church. And I said, all of these people spent four hours here last night cleaning and mopping and setting up. And you walked in, and because a couple chairs were out of place, you assumed that no one has done anything and that you're going to come and fix it. And... That was one of the last conversations I ever had with that person, Uh, which is, I guess, okay. But we cannot think that just because we don't see someone do something that it's not getting done. I mean, you need to know that like our church governing board, which consists of six people, Shay and I, um, Kate Shivers is on it, um, Angela Massey, Luis Sanchez, and Kervin Candio at the Wissanoming campus, You need to know that our governing board has sat at times in six-hour-long meetings that no one sees. We've had meetings that go from 7 p.m. to 1 a.m. Now, I'm trying to cut those back. But, you know, no one sees that. And no one has ever thanked any of our governing board members for giving up six hours on a Thursday night after a full day of work to make sure that our budget is met, that our our staff is organized, that our building is maintained. So that's fine. You just need to know that stuff happens that you don't see. You need to know that people come and clean the building that you don't see. And when it's not, when when there's a crumb on on the pew and you complain, you're complaining about someone that put in a couple hours to make sure there weren't crumbs on every pew. You know, you need to know that the worship team puts in time to prepare a service that the children's church teachers prepare for the most part their lessons ahead of time. Um, you need to know that it takes time to write a sermon. You need to know that there are people that come here in the middle of the week to fix the building. You need to know that there are people that come here and give up every single Saturday night to pray for the church. So just because you don't see it happening doesn't mean it's not happening. And I'm saying that because. If the people on the wall and the people building the wall were fighting each other saying, you're not doing what I'm doing, they would have never gotten anywhere. And we have some people whose job 
is to build the wall in our church, metaphorically speaking. And we have other people, it's their job to stand on the wall and watch for the enemy. Both are equally valuable, and just because they're not doing what you're doing doesn't mean it's not important. Does that, you understand? I mean, Paul basically taught that in the New Testament when he said that the church is a body, but we're all different members of the body. All right? So, um, any questions on that? No? Good. All right. Just going to move right past that. I know I kind of went on a little bit of a, a tangent there, but I think it was meaningful or important for us to, uh, to make sure we get that done. Just because people don't show up to a Bible study doesn't mean they don't study the Bible. Just because people don't show up to clean the building doesn't mean they don't love the church. Just because people don't show up to prayer meeting doesn't mean they hate to pray. There's more than one way to skin a cat. Why you would skin a cat, I don't know. But there is more than one way. All right, let me move on. The third section. Uh, would someone mind standing up and loudly reading Nehemiah 4, verses 21 through 23? It's the shortest section. Any volunteer? Ariana, would you mind? Stand up nice and loud. It's just this slide. Go ahead and read that for us. All right, thank you. Let's give Ariana a round of applause. All right, great job to all of our readers today. Uh, yeah, this is very simple to me. I mean, there's probably more that could be said about this, but the level of commitment that Nehemiah asks for from these people, I almost, when I read it, I'm almost embarrassed for him. Like, whoa, you ask them to stay there all the time? Yeesh. I mean, because I'm constantly having to, th to remind myself, don't ask too much of people, don't ask too much of people. And, and then Nehemiah here is saying, hey, I'd like you to work all day and then stay here and keep watch all night. Okay? Thanks. I mean, the, the level of commitment that he asks people for is almost embarrassing. It's like, Nehemiah, dude, chill. You know, I mean, like, these people have been working all day. Let them go home. But he doesn't. He tells them that they need to stay. They don't even change their clothes. They take their weapon to the water, which means either to draw water or to go use some water, if you know what I mean. Think about it. But he's basically asking them to be uh, on point 24-7. And you know, the only way Nehemiah can ask that is because he is on point 24-7. I mean, even he stays in the city. Uh, and we'll, we'll find out when we get to chapter 5 that Nehemiah could have lived pretty well. He could have eaten pretty well, he could have made a lot of money, but he chose not to because he knows what that does when, when the leader lives way better than everyone else. So Nehemiah could ask for that level of commitment because he gave that level of commitment. So 
For those of you that are leaders, whether it's at your home or at your workplace, your family, do not ask for greater commitment than you're willing to give. Do you, under, you understand? I mean, if you're not willing to give 24-7, then don't ask other people to give 24-7. Uh, what you give will set the standard for what you can ask from other people. Now, you know, last, uh, yesterday, actually, we had a group of 21 people come from our, a sister church in Lancaster. Uh, they get, drove about an hour and 15 minutes to get here. 21 of them came, helped us with a, a community cleanup in Holmesburg, helped us clean up in the building, helped us paint the children's ministry classrooms. At the end of the day, though, they left, and they drove back to Lancaster. And they're at church. Well, they're probably taking a nap right now, actually. Uh, but they went, to, they went right back home and did their thing. And that's fine, because that's what sometimes the situation you're in. And someday we might be those people going to help someone else. But you know, if you live here and you're part of the community and you're part of the church, but you treat it the same way, like a, kind of like, well, I'm going to pop in and out on Sunday real quick, show my face, see you next Sunday... That's not what Nehemiah is asking for here, and it's not even what I would ask for. It's fine when some team comes out of town, pops in, does a job, and leaves, never to be heard of again. That's fine. But when it's a member of your own community, that's not fine. So, you know, I'm, I'm encouraging you to consider a 24-7 type commitment to our assignment in this region rather than just to pop your head in real quick, say hello at church, and be done. Now, I also want to clarify a couple things, because I, I, this is a, a con consistent challenge for me. A lot of the extreme statements that Jesus makes about commitment in the Bible, it's about commitment to him, <laughs> not commitment to an organization or denomination or even a local church. So, like... Uh, Sometimes people will take these questions about, take these statements Jesus made about commitment, like, you know, let the dead bury their own dead, meaning, like, don't even, like, disconnect from your family completely, you know, and they'll say, you have to do that in order to join our church. Well, that's not what Jesus said. He said, you might have to do that in order to follow me. Uh... Jesus said to the rich man, you're going to have to sell everything you have and give the, the money to the poor. Well, that's what Jesus said about following him. That doesn't have to be a qualification to be a part of a ministry or a church. Do you understand? Um, so all these, these things about commitment, don't, I'm, I guess I'm kind of warning you, don't let anyone dupe you in to thinking that being part of a church or a ministry is the same thing as following Jesus. That because you can't be at every single church event that all of a sudden you don't love Jesus. Uh, that because you can't give 100% to this peripheral ministry that you're a part of that you, you don't love Jesus. They're two separate things. Obviously, I'm in favor of commitment and I want people to be committed, but I also don't want people to, to feel guilt um, when... They're unable to live up to an unrealistic set of standards and expectations because guilt ultimately drives people away. 
Um, so we want to protect people from that and, and unrealistic expectations. I think I may have took a, a little sidetrack there. So let me, let me wrap up with these three questions. What is your voice saying? Are you the voice of a discouraged person, a fearful person? Is the enemy using your voice to discourage other people? Or are you a voice like Nehemiah who offers hope, who reminds people of how good God is? I want you to, I want you to consider that and watch your tongue. That doesn't have to do with how many four-letter words you say in a given week. What are the impacts of, impact of your words? What is your role? So what is your voice? What is your role? Are you one of the ones that stands on the wall watching? Or are you one of the ones that rebuilds the wall? Know your role. Don't feel bad about your role. Fully embrace your role. Don't let people guilt you into playing another role. And then finally, what is your commitment level? And I'm asking, first, what is your commitment level to Jesus? Secondly, what is your commitment level to fulfilling his assignment for your life? Would it just be nice if it kind of happened, or are you committed to being an active part of it happening? So what is your voice, what is your role, what is your commitment level? So I I would like to pray some of this back to the Lord and respond to some of this stuff in prayer. So kind of three questions for you to pray in response to. So I'm going to ask, I'm just going to open it up for prayer and make this kind of a prayer meeting. If you wouldn't mind standing up when you pray, just so that we don't get people praying over one another, um, and then we'll wrap up and go from there. So I'll open us up and then stand up and pray in response when, if you got something to pray. Lord, we want to we wanna match up with the voice of Nehemiah We want to know what our role is. Give us clarity on that. And then Jesus, the the level of commitment you show to us is just unfathomable. And we want to give you a high level of commitment in return. We don't want to be kind of lukewarm, casual believers. So we submit these three areas to you and ask that you would convict us and correct us. Show us what we need to do, Lord. And anyone else that wants to pray out, this is your chance. Show them that they will be to serve you and to serve the body of Christ. And Lord, just keep it all of our hearts that none of us are going to feel 
show me. So, Father, how Father, to encourage to be more like how Nehemiah led, Father, for all leaders in your kingdom, Lord, Father. And I ask that you show us how to be your individual. Let us not be burdened to our brothers. Let us not bring down our brothers, but lift them up and encourage them as Nehemiah did. That's the only way we can advance the kingdom of our Lord, Father. save us, but as soon as the moment we realize that Jesus Christ paid it all, and that we can't do anything to earn eternal life, the better off we will be, and I believe we invest in the more committed and more we acknowledge him for who he is. Jesus, would you focus us as we move forward as a church and continue to just kind of grind through, Lord, and obey you in the little things? I pray that we would not lose heart while we're obeying you in the little things, um, that we would continue to sow good seed and be patient, 
Lord, that we would continue to gain our strength from you and our encouragement from you. We bless you, Lord. I pray that you would protect everything that was prayed today, that it would not uh, be swept away by the, the cares of the day or the cares of the week, uh, but that they would take root and bear fruit. I pray that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, guys. Like I said, Shay's preaching next week. Feel free to stick around and hang out. I think we have stuff to eat in the house. Pick up your kids also. Don't forget to do that. All right. See you next week.